Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the UCSF Mount Zion Healthy Living Series. This lecture tonight is presented by the UCSF National Center of Excellence in Women's Health and the UCSF Osher Center for Integrative Medicine with support from the Mount Zion Health Fund. So today we are honored to have our guest speaker, Margaret Chesney. Dr. Chesney is the director of the UCSF Osher Center where she oversees programs in integrative medicine research, education, and patient care. Dr. Chesney has conducted research on the relationship between behavior and chronic disease. The focus of her work has been on the role that the individual can play in the promotion of personal health, prevention of disease, and the maintenance of optimal well-being across the lifespan, even in the face of serious health challenges. Before coming to the Osher Center, Dr. Chesney was the deputy director of the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine at the National Institutes of Health. She has been president of the Academy of Behavioral Medicine Research, the American Psychosomatic Society, and the Division of Health Psychology of the APA. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Dr. Chesney. Thank you very much, Christina, and welcome to the series this evening. It's my pleasure to talk with you about something that I feel very, uh, a great deal of passion, if you will, and that is mind-body interventions. And we're going to be talking about is there power in positive thinking. And what I'll try to cover this evening is I'm going to highlight the fact that there are pathways by which positive emotions influence our health and our well-being. I'll also mention the fact and point out some of the research that shows us that positive emotions and negative emotions are not just opposites of the same coin. They're actually two separate domains of feelings that can coexist. Then we'll answer the question, can positive emotional states actually be increased and enhanced and then maintained over time? You know, can you do something about this if it's a healthy thing to do? And then finally, I will close by giving you some tools that you can use. So we'll start with this idea of are there pathways, the, the pathways by which positive emotions influence health and well-being. But to do that, I actually am going to go back in time and cover where the science actually started, which was always in this area of negative emotions. And this grows out of early, early medicine. Early medicine evolved as a search to eliminate disease from the individual. Even the earliest times, they, people noticed that individuals would become sick, and it was like, how do we get this out of the person? There were early attempts to um, actually expel or repel spirits from people through shamans and rituals. There was an effort to eliminate disease with potions or elixirs that were created by an alchemist. So focus was on the disease. There must be something very wrong. Let's eliminate it with these things. A so focus on uh, negative spirits, if you will. And actually, Hippocrates came up with this idea that we had four humors in our body. And he believed that many diseases resulted from negative emotions, and he thought those were related to various humors or some sort of chemical that was in the body. So our research has often focused on, and actually my early work on mind-body 
research focused on negative states and emotional stress. And this is very, very much something that you'll see in the media, covers of Time magazines. Does stress impact our disease? And how many of you feel that stress has a role in your own health and wellness? So we all know this, and that, see, I did research on that. Like, does stress play a role in heart disease, for example? And that's where a lot of the research had been from the 1970s on. What is stress? Stress is the perception that something in the environment exceeds your ability to cope, and it can actually endanger your well-being. And notice I've highlighted the word perception. Because it may be, for some people, something isn't threatening at all, whereas other people, they would perceive it as very stressful. A young man, only 13, actually climbed Mount Everest this week. He would not be stressed out by heights. Now, me, on the other hand, if I were uh, climbing even, you know, a medium-sized mountain, if I'm looking over a cliff, I will feel slightly stressed. To him, it's nothing. It all relates to our perception. And that's important because you can work on that. But the key of stress and these, this, these environmental states is it in turn leads to what we call negative affect, negative emotions. And I'll highlight a couple of these and then we'll go on into positive. But this is where research was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Focusing, for example, on anger. Anger arises in situations that are perceived as unjust. There's anger right now about this oil spill. You know, why did this happen? This shouldn't have happened. We feel upset. We feel powerless to stop it. And anger has physiological concomitants that, are, that will actually come out if the anger is sustained, and particularly if anger isn't expressed. It's felt, intensely felt, and there's nothing one can do about it. Depression is another negative affect, and it's produced by a loss of support, a loss of reinforcement, it's often uh, seen as reduced levels of activity. People that get very depressed will actually sometimes become lethargic and feel down. They sleep a lot. It can also be associated with anger, theoretically, and even in um, clinical care, as anger turned inward. These are the uh, negative emotions. And there's been a lot of research on the extent to which negative emotions impact disease outcomes. Uh, I'm just going to share a few of the studies with you that kind of give you a flavor of the type of research that many of us did earlier on. There's a famous religious orders study, and they looked at anger and disease. In this study, there are 851 clergy, primarily men, but there were some women in the study. Their average age was 75, and they rated them to the extent to which they had suppressed anger or were depressed and then followed them for four years and showed that there were increased death rates among people who had these more angry moods, even when they controlled as they can statistically for their exact age, their gender, their educational levels, whether or not they smoked or were overweight. So negative emotions are impacting disease in and of themselves, not necessarily through other risk factors. This is a much more recent study that came out of the Women's Health Initiative, you may remember that that was a study where they were looking at hormone replacement. But they studied literally 107,000 women in the study. And we included in the study, and I was involved in some of this, other self-report measures. So the Women's Health Initiative not only looked at hormone replacement, but they're looking at all kinds of other variables. And interestingly, they found that women who had higher scores on cynical or hostile attitudes had a higher risk of death than the women that didn't have those attitudes. 
the women that were the most hostile, they had 63 deaths per 10,000 women over a course of about 10 years versus those who were the least hostile. And later, I'll tell you about the optimists. You can just imagine. Now, the question is, how do these negative emotional states kind of climb into and get into our bodies to affect our health outcomes? And then the flip side of that is, what, what about positive states? What do they do? So I'm just going to cover some of the negatives so you get a sense of how this is done. There are actually three pathways that, by which your negative emotional states can impact your health. The first one is physiological. It actually affects physiology. It affects all the systems in the body. This is what we see from doing research on negative emotions and on stress. It affects the nervous system, the musculoskeletal systems. When people are feeling really negative, have negative states or negative emotions, they're more likely to have headaches. It affects the respiratory system. It affects how we breathe. It affects the cardiovascular system, can increase risk of heart disease, the endocrine system, gastrointestinal system, even the reproductive system. All the way down, these states will impact our health. There have been some really interesting research now using functional magnetic resonance imaging. We used to have to ask people, how are you feeling, and then people fill out questionnaires. But now we can get into the brain and actually look at the brain while people are filling out questionnaires or while people are doing other things. And Richard Davidson and some of his colleagues that you see on this um, slide have studied both negative and positive states, and they are associated with enhanced electrophysiological activity in different places on the, in the frontal lobes. So that negative states like anger and depression are more likely associated with right-sided frontal lobe activity. So they can study the people, give questionnaires, have people rate these people, and then look at their brains. And if a person scores high on hostility, there's more activation on the right side of the brain. Then they can study those people to try to figure out what's happening physiologically to them. And they found that the people that have this right-sided frontal lobe activation have effects in the immune system, which is what they were looking for. They wanted to see how are their immune systems different from people who have the left-sided activation, who are the more positive people. And what they found was that the people with this right-sided activation, who also scored higher on this negative affect, have lower levels of natural killer cell activity. Their immune system is less, has lower levels of the kind of cells that will go along and kill bacteria and so forth. They had greater decreases in natural killer cell, or f- cell function when there was stress in the environment. Right at the moment that you need those natural killer cells to become, you know, to become enhanced, these people are showing these um, a greater decreases in those under stress. And you see other effects, even affecting how a body responds to a vaccine is influenced by this kind of activation that's all associated with stress and negative moods. And there's actually now more evidence to actually begin to help us understand the pathway by which a person who's cynical and hostile, how that might actually impact their hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, putting out more of a stress hormone known as cortisol. So there are physiological effects. There's also changes in behavior associated with negative states. People who are depressed, for example, are much more likely to engage in alcohol use. They're less physically active. They're less likely to take the medications that they need. 
When people get depressed, they fall off their medications and they don't take them. And in turn, these kinds of behaviors can lead to increased risk for a number of diseases like coronary heart disease. There's a third pathway. All of these can be acting one at a time, or you can actually, with depressed people, you can sometimes see all three pathways going on. The physiological pathway, they, they start smoking and drinking, and then they also have more increased social isolation. The very people that probably need the most social support, when people are depressed and feel irritable and angry, they tend to be a little more hostile, they actually are people who have a lower level of social support, partly because they view others as competitors. Uh, hostile people, cynical people want to know, what do you want? Why are you here? Why did you come to this lecture? Are you here to criticize me? You know, they, they, they're not looking at the other person, but, oh, look at these wonderful people who took their evening when the sun finally came out to hear a lecture. You know, this is a wonderful environment that we, we get to share together. Now, there have been studies on social isolation. One of them is done at the Whitehall. So I have a picture of Whitehall, so you know about Whitehall in England. They had 188 healthy men and 110 healthy women from this. These are civil servants, if you will, um, in England. And they had a social isolation questionnaire. You know, how many people do you know? Do you have people you could ask favors of? And they found that people who scored higher on social isolation also had higher cortisol levels. So the physiological pathways are following some of these behavioral styles. Uh, another really important paper was put out some years ago by Redford Williams. They followed up people who'd had one heart attack. They already had coronary artery disease, or CAD. And they followed 1,123 men, 245 women who already had heart disease. And they were looking at all these risk factors to see who would have a second heart attack. You know, would it be high cholesterol, high blood pressure? And the result that jumped off the page at them was something they hadn't expected. And that was a very, this is over five years, who actually, you know, succumbed to heart disease. And they found that it was people who were unmarried and people who had no one they could turn to. They had one question on the questionnaire. Do you have someone to whom you could turn if you needed help um, in an emergency? And when they looked at people who had no, weren't in a marital relationship and also said they had no one they could turn to. They were totally isolated. Their risk of death was three times the risk of other people. And they actually controlled for whether or not a person was there when they had a heart attack. It wasn't that. It's a sense of being totally alone. is not a healthy thing for men or for women. So I wanted to give you this history because this is really where the whole field of mind-body medicine began. It was all on negative emotion. And it was all really sort of focusing on pathways by which stress leads to heart disease. And tonight, though, we're going to be sort of opening the book, looking at a brand new field, which is a field that is taking a very different look to see what about those people who have a positive outlook? What about those people who have a sense of well-being? So we're going to look at that area as kind of the flip side, but it's even more than a flip side, and look at the impact on health and ways in which you can intervene to change emotional states. Now, you might first say, well, wait a minute, what do we know about positive emotion? Is it associated, if negative affect is associated with increased mortality, is the opposite true of positive? And the answer of that is yes. And I don't want to just only use religious studies, but this is actually one of my favorite studies of all times. It's the nun study. It's a study of 180 Catholic nuns 
who were followed up for many years to study them and study their lifestyles and their, and their health. And in this one study by, done by Danner, the nuns, when they entered the convent, when they were 22 years of age, had written out why they wanted to be a nun and what their lives were like. And this investigator was able to go back in time, study what the nuns said, and then look at longevity as the nuns were now 75 to 95 years of age. And when they were filling out this paper when they were 22, they had no idea that anybody would go back years later. It's a lot like studies where you go back to a freezer where you might have blood samples from way, way before. But these are samples of people's lives. And they rated the samples on the extent to which they had positive affect. And here is a low rating for positive emotion. It's just an account. It's sort of like a news statement, but it doesn't have any emotion, and then I'll show you one that does. This reads, I was born on September 26, 1909, the eldest of seven children, five girls, two boys. My candidate year was spent in the mother house, teaching chemistry, the second year Latin Notre Dame, at the Notre Dame Institute. With God's grace, I intend to do my best for, my, for our order, for the spread of religion, and for my personal sanctification. So it's an account. Here was a, a quote, a part, passage from one of these um, nuns' uh, little diaries of why they wanted to be a nun from, uh, that got a high score on positive emotion. God started my life off well by bestowing upon me a grace of inestimable value. The past year, which I have spent as a candidate studying at Notre Dame College, has been a very happy one. Now I look forward with eager joy to receiving the holy habit of our Our Lady and to a life of union with love divine. That got a high scoring. And then here are the data. The people who scored higher with positive emotion, the higher that score, the more likely they were to be alive six decades later. Significantly more likely to be alive. And Danner concluded in his paper, he said, finding such a strong association of written positive emotional expression to longevity indicates a need for research that sheds light on the underlying mechanisms and mediators that are responsible and associated for this, with, um, for, with this relationship. And notice, it's not just, if, it were, if positive and negative were just flip sides exactly, negative would have come out opposite but still significant. So there's something different about the positive emotion. They're not just the flip side. Now I promised you I would tell you about people that are more optimistic. We actually had an optimism scale called the life orientation test that we had the women in the Women's Health Initiative fill out when they joined the study. And here what you see is that optimistic women had a decreased risk of death um, than pessimistic women that having an optimistic approach to life, there were 46 deaths, and these were all women who entered the study over 55. They had increased risk of death compared to those people who scored low on the optimism scale and scored in the direction of pessimism. So it begins to suggest that there may be something here. And in fact, Andrew Steptoe and one of his um, postdocs just did this meta-analysis, and it means an analysis where they took a whole bunch of various papers. They took 70 papers, if you will, and studied them to see, is there really something here? Because I actually know Andrew, and he wasn't sure. He was just wondering if this is just maybe, you know, people found here, there, and elsewhere. So they had 
35 studies that they found that looked at healthy populations. Like the nun study, they were healthy when they entered the study. And he also, they looked at 35 papers where they had diseased populations, like that heart disease study. And what they found was in both cases, having a more positive outlook and scoring higher on some measure of positive emotion was associated with reduced risk and of longer mortality, if you will, or longer lifespan, longevity, than people who scored low on positive affect. And so even Andrew now is beginning to say, this is interesting. What are the mechanisms? How does, you know, what, what does this do for our bodies? And we began to look, and just as I shared with you the work by um, Richard Davidson in his lab, his investigators have also been looking at people's health um, profiles, and so has Sel uh, Sheldon Cohen. What they found um, in two different studies, these are totally independent studies, in one they had a cohort of over 1,000 faculty members, and they just gave them a measure of positive affect, and then they waited as the year went on and counted up their colds. And they found that the people who scored higher on positive affect at the beginning of the year had fewer colds as the year went on. And now Sheldon Cohen did something even more interesting. They put people in a hotel. They coded them on whether or not they were people who had this positive affect. Then they actually um, gave them rhinovirus. They had the people come in, lean back, and they dropped rhinovirus, nose cold virus, right into their noses. So they know when they got exposed. There was no question. And they could see to the extent to which a person's immune system was able to fight off the cold. And Sheldon, who had always been studying stress, Sheldon found that positive emotional style was associated and it was a direct dose response. The more positive people were, the less likely they were to get the colds. Um, so it's this is beginning to really be of interest to people. Whitehall study. Remember, they had that social isolation questionnaire? Well, they also had, they had people go about their day and periodically throughout the day on a one to five scale indicate how happy they were. Just as the day went on, just like you could do. You, know, you could be in the study. Certain times during the day, you're supposed to just stop what you're doing, rate your happiness. And they found that the people who had rated more of their day happy had lower cortisol levels over the day. They were, they, had, they were doing ambulatory heart rate measurements all day, too. So they have an ambulatory monitor on people measuring their heart rates. They had lower heart rates. And they had lower plasma fibrinogen levels. And that's always been sort of an, there's been interest in whether or not stress leads to heart disease by actually changing the plasma stickiness, if you will, the extent to which the cells get stuck together in the blood. So this, these mood states are associated with a number of physiological things that are associated with, in this case, lower risk. So we know physiologically lower risk. What about health behaviors? Well, it turns out that people who have more positive affect are also more likely to engage in positive um, health behaviors. By the way, those of us who do studies, when you start getting these patterns, it makes it hard to do the study because you've got all these risk factors operating at the same time. Like maybe you're just interested in one of these risk factors, but it turns out that positive affect people also are doing more physical activity, they have reduced levels of cigarette smoking, they tend to drink less, and they ha eat a healthier diet. 
so that, you know, it's hard because when you're doing these studies, you may only just want to look at the affect, but it's, you can see all these pathways, multiple ways this is being translated into things that affect our health. And then there's social support. Remember the negative affect people were more isolated? Well, it turns out that positive affect people um, have uh, more intense and, and have a higher level of social support than their counterparts. People who report positive emotions just receive more social support, which is kind of sad because it's the, the other people really need it. Uh, positive affect is associated with the number of people, um, the number of people who provided help over a 12-month period. They actually have done studies like that. How many people helped you? They ask people each month. They can add that up. You know, positive affect, and you'll see some evidence, we think how this affects people over time, that if you're in a positive mood, other people will tend to kind of aggregate toward you and there's more interaction. Um, People tend to avoid people who seem to be gruff and suspicious and hostile. So we now have all these pathways, physiological, behavior, and even societal, environmental influences. Now, I said I would also mention, because I've been talking negative, positive, negative, positive. And so you might get the sense that maybe these are just flip sides of the same coin. And what we wanted to point out now is that they're not just opposites, that you can basically have both of these emotions at the same time. Susan Falkman, who was the former director of the Osher Center, and I used to work together and do some research. And it was in our research. Now, we expected, we were studying people who were under intense chronic stress. These were caregivers of persons with HIV AIDS here in San Francisco. And more than half of them um, also had HIV themselves. So these people were under a great deal of stress. So we were expecting that many of the individuals in our study would have high levels of negative affect. What we didn't expect in a group of caregivers and people who also had HIV and were caregiving, that they also had and reported high levels of positive affect. And in fact, my whole area of research now that is focusing on positive affect was because of the participants in that study. They came, uh, some of the participants came up to Susan Folkman and myself and complained. You know, this is, science has these funny points and turns, twists and turns. They said to us, you know, here's my questionnaire, but I've got to tell you, you are not asking me about anything that's really important to me in this questionnaire. You, You know, and they sort of accused us of missing the boat. So we said, what do you mean? And they said, ever since I was diagnosed with HIV, I've changed the way I live entirely. I don't miss a sunset. When it rains, I am so glad to stand out in the rain and feel those raindrops on my face. And we started this work back when uh, it was before there were all the wonderful medications. So these were people who, if something hadn't happened, as it did, they were facing, they were really facing death. And they knew that. They knew that their CD4 cells were going to decline and they were losing about 50 CD4s a year, and unless there was a miracle, which we later got, they were going to pass away. But they told us, they said, look at the flowers. I, I've never lived my life to the fullest because now I know every day is a gift, and it's changed me. I had, um, one of them was going off to Italy, and he studied Italian before he went to Italy. He wanted to really live Italy. And they said, you don't ask any about, anything about this. 
when we went back and studied our questionnaires, and we did have little questionnaires that touched on positive affect, and it was looking at those data that the, our participants told us, and we then we started looking for any evidence we had, and they were right. And what we found in particular was the chronic stress of caregiving for a dying partner, that the people who scored higher in positive affect and could find positive meaning in their lives, and we found items about this in our questionnaires, that even though their partners might become bereaved, and when people are bereaved, when they lose their partner, everyone became incredibly depressed, but the people who went into that with positive affect recovered much more quickly, much more quickly, and the other people who didn't have that throughout their caregiving experience were much more sustained in, in a response to bereavement that went out for years. So we could even see that it was as though the positive affect was giving people reduced vulnerability and enhanced resilience, even in the face of chronic stress, even in the face of great depression. So the two, they're slightly correlated, you see that, but they can both coexist at the same time. And many of us have things that are weighing on our souls. Uh, someone who's not well in our families or other problems that, that are, you know, mortgages that are coming due. All of that is weighing on us. But, you know, when you, you walk outside and you see the flowers or you see a little, a little child running up to their parent, at the same time, knowing all the stress that we're under, you see something beautiful and you just note it. And isn't that beautiful? Isn't that spectacular? Or when the sun finally comes through the clouds, you can experience that. So they're not opposites. They coexist. Pressman did a ma uh, just a magnificent study where she looked over 140 countries for evidence of negative and positive affect and health outcomes using um, data from you know the World Health Organization, and she showed that negative affect was associated with with health outcomes and positive affect, and she was also associated, but they're independent. And she pointed out, she said, positive and negative affect are independently related to health, not opposite ends. So it means that if you can bring your negative affect down and you can enhance your positive affect, you get a twofer, that that will really reduce your risk. So it, it, this is all a really important, um, I think, really important breakthrough for us. So the question is, can you do this? Is this something you're born with, that you're more positive? Can you really increase your positive sense of well-being? And then can those states be maintained over time? So let me share with you just a few studies, and then we'll talk more about this. Uh, people have looked, at, particularly here at the Osher Center, we do a lot of mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR. And they've begun to look at whether or not mindfulness enhances positive affect. <laughs> And in this study, they took 60 depressed people, and they randomized them to mindfulness-based stress reduction or to a waiting list, which means people just tend not to change. But the question here is a pilot study. If you learn mindfulness, can you increase your positive affect? And they did indeed find that mindfulness-based stress reduction resulted in significant decreases in perceived stress. So they brought the stress down, and it elevated positive affect at the same time. So mindfulness might be really one of the ways to do this. There have been other stress management programs, and one I'd like to share with you is one of some of the work that Susan Folkman and I did on what we called coping effectiveness training. 
it combines mindfulness meditation type interventions with problem solving. And it's something that we've tested here at um, UCSF in two very large controlled studies and showed um, the results I'll share with you this evening. It does actually change levels of positive mood. So let me tell you a little bit about coping and stress and kind of what happens. And you'll see why we came up with coping effectiveness training as a way to bolster the kinds of things you learn with meditation. Uh, this is Susan Folkman's theory. She's a, she's a social psychologist that studies theory. And she had for a long time been studying stress and coping. And she had points out that when people are confronted with a general stressor, uh, like, if you will, let's take the BP oil spill. That's a stressor, especially if you were working in the Gulf trying to get it to stop. You take the, the general picture and then you hone in what is a specific aspect of the stress. Maybe a specific aspect of the stress is that the oil is still gushing. Or take a physical health program, a problem. Like people, say, who've been diagnosed with you know, a, a very challenging condition. Like let's say someone who's diagnosed with cancer. That's a general stressor. Someone says that you have now been diagnosed with a type of cancer. And then they feel under a great deal of stress. And then Susan said what people do is they then focus in on something specific about that stress. You know, what some aspect of it that's bothering them right then. And in most cases, be it a diagnosis of cancer or diagnosis with HIV or any of these things, there are aspects that can be changed. And there are aspects that cannot be changed, unchangeable aspects. And so actually when Susan and I did this work, we worked with HIV patients because there was something unchangeable about having HIV. Once you have HIV, you have HIV. You can't, there's no way to undo that. Um, but a lot of us, I'm aging. And once we age, we age. And you know, we can try as we might to do a million things to change. You know, we could get facelifts and Botox to get rid of my little wrinkle here. But in the end, we're, it's something that is really unchangeable. The, the clock just ticks on. But they're changeable things. I can watch my diet and things like that. So life presents this to us. Every challenge that we have, usually there's aspects about it that you can change. And so what Susan's theory had been was that if you have certain things that are changeable, what you want to do there is attack. Make those changes. Problem solve. Teach people negotiation skills. Like people who are struggling with chronic illness under our current health care system often have to make a lot of calls to insurance companies or scheduling appointments, all of that. Communication skills, negotiating skills. This is all important ways to affect things that can be changed. And then for things that can't be changed, this is where you use emotion-focused strategies like guided imagery, physical activity, humor, and special strategies to enhance well-being. What's important here is that mindfulness, which is a wonderful strategy, is, I would like to argue, is particularly effective for the unchangeable aspects. But there are times, like if there's a fire, you want to put out the fire. So you don't want to just be mindful of the fire. You want to put out the fire. So there's parts of our lives where you want, to, you want help to take action and so coping effectiveness training is basically based on this. Now, so when Susan was talking with me about this, her theory, I said, Susan, when I first met her, I said, 
have you ever taught anybody of this? You know, she had studied this, and she actually showed that if you use emotion-focused strategies for changeable stressors, you actually will get more symptoms. So if you, you, and if you try to problem solve things that cannot be changed, you also get higher levels of symptoms. You have a mismatch between the strategy and the problem. And they actually studied people at Three Mile Island. Most of the people in this room are too young to remember, but there was a meltdown there. And they studied, it happened. You couldn't undo the meltdown. It had happened at this um, nuclear power plant. And they found that people who kept trying to problem solve that there was a meltdown actually became more ill. That people who are able to basically accept that it occurred and move on did better. And there were things they could do that were changeable, but you couldn't change the fact that the meltdown had occurred. And if you struggle against things that cannot be changed, it turns out it's not healthy. So I asked Susan, I said, you should teach this to people. And she said, well, I'm not a clinician. And guess what? My next sentence was, but I am. I'm going to do this. We will do this together. I said, I need your theory, but let's teach people to do this. And that's what coping effectiveness training did. And what I want to teach you now is these, the strategies we use to enhance well-being. I promised you tools that you can use. And all of you, um, if you don't have it now as you leave, I want you to pick up one of these handouts. It, this encompasses the strategies that we outlined, and I've come up with a little tool to help you remember them. Breathe is the first part of this. Breathe. The word breathe and just think be, breathe, breathe. One of the important things is to take a deep breath. It's really one of the most important things we can do is take a deep breath and be mindful. So we do teach mindfulness. Be present with yourself in the moment. And we taught people to do this, to take a deep breath, slow down, be mindful, and then continue to, just, whenever they felt stressed, to just slow down and breathe slowly and very deeply. Be aware of the current moment. And if this were quiet, if I wasn't talking at you, you would hear there's a fan in the room. You would hear the door open. You would hear the different tones, the noise of people shuffling paper. You just hear it. Be aware of the current moment. Accept what is, not what ought to be. Some of us got caught in traffic today because there were traffic jams. And you just accept that. It's there. It's, it is. It shouldn't be that way, but just be in the moment. Yes, it is. And you see it, and you just be aware of it, and then focus back on just being present in the moment. Look at the cars around you. Look at all the stressed people. And you're not stressed. Um, suspend judgment is another really important part of this. Intrusive thoughts roll in when you're being mindful. Uh, you know, frustrations that you may have had because you didn't do something as well as you would like. Christina's upset that the food didn't come earlier. You know, just let it go. It's all okay. We're all fine. People who needed food got food. You know, it's just let, let go of those things and just be back present. That's B. R, realistic goals. Set realistic goals for the moment, for the hour, 
for the day and then celebrate those. What we find is that people are way too optimistic about what they're going to get done during the day and they get to the end of the day and all they do is sort of self-flagellate, you know, oh, I didn't get that done, I didn't get that done, I'm worthless, I just, oh, I can't believe myself, I'll make a list for tomorrow and I'm going to get everything done tomorrow and then they just are perpetuating, no. Think about what can I, what can I take from this moment? Well, from this, this hour you'll spend here, you're going to walk away with this tool. And that's enough. That's a good goal. And then tonight you can celebrate, I now have a new tool. I could maybe tape it up to the refrigerator. I could make some copies, put one in my car. You know, just celebrate realistic goals. To come out of a lecture like this with one or two ideas that you didn't have before, that's fine. That's fine. E, B-R-E, everyday events. Notice the positive moments. This came right from our participants. I'll tell you, it's very hard to find anything about how to enhance positive affect in psychiatry. You can look it up. There's nothing there. Mental health is not about health. It's all about disease. We had to scour the literature to find any of these things. Uh, and then look at other interventions that people have come up with because it's just not there. The National Institutes of Health, which some of you heard I was there, it's the National Institutes of Disease. They don't study health. They don't. This is that why we have an OSHA center here, and this is what we're interested in, that each one of us every day can be the healthiest we can be at that day, at, in that moment. That's a wonderful goal. So notice sunset. Notice the flowers. Recognize when things go right and share these events with others. Now you're wondering, why is there a tire on this slide? I will tell you. This is my, you will not forget this. When you see me, you're going to say, the woman with the tires. I hate changing tires. I'm not particularly good at it. I can't get the thingy out of the trunk. I mean, I'm just not good at this. I can do it. I can do it, but I'm not good at it. And have you ever noticed you only have a flat tire when you need to go somewhere? We never actually recognize when things go right. So if you're in a parking garage and you hear somebody go, yes, it's me. Because every day when I go out to my car, this is true, I do this, I celebrate that I don't have to change the tires. You know, this is a great day. Uh, you have to notice when things are going well. Very few of us, we may have some allergies, but I don't hear anybody having a really bad cold. But you know when you have a cold and you can't wait when I can breathe again? Oh, I'm give anything to breathe again. To not, you know, when you're sleeping at night and one side gets clogged. Oh, dear, they're doing this first TV. They're going to think I'm crazy. But, and then, but most of us are able to breathe. Celebrate that. You can breathe out of both nostrils, or at least one. It's a great thing. So I'm really serious about this. When you get the mail, nothing from the IRS. It's great. It's great. Haven't you ever noticed? I mean, that IRS letter comes and you're home. It's too late. You can't call. It's always a Friday. How do they do this? I don't know. So celebrate when things go right. Everyday events. The day is filled with wonderful events that we just walk right by. Okay. So you want to then share these with others to tell people, like I have just told you. And you're all laughing, but it's true. I want you to go and notice bus came sort of on time. It's a great day. Okay, the last A-T-H. A, acts of kindness. Create positive events for other people. If there aren't any positive events, make it happen. Here's one you can do. 
You go to the grocery store. I always get the little basket. I don't know why. I just don't need a lot of stuff. So I have the little basket. And so what I do is, you know, I, there's this rule that big baskets in the grocery store let little baskets in, right? Do little baskets let big baskets in? They can. When I see a woman with kids, it's 5.30, 6.30, the kids are crying, everybody's hypoglycemic, the children are, you know, it's the huggies and the stuff is falling and they're going to the candy aisle. It's a disaster. I let them go first. And they can't believe it. But you only have four things. I say, you go ahead. I don't have kids. It's okay. Go ahead. And they go, good Samaritan on aisle three. You know, it is, it's great. It's great. And everybody looks at you because they think to themselves, I wouldn't have done that. You know, let people in when you drive. Be grand about it because it just feels so good to give to others. So you have a lot of opportunities to create positive events for other people. Another thing you can do is that there are, um, turn it around. What do I mean by that? Negative things do happen. And this is a challenge, but they, they do. And, you know, sometimes things happen. You don't get a good grade on a test. You're in an automobile accident. What we, they occur. And so what, what I like to do is I reframe that event. You know how you have pictures at home and they look kind of dingy and they aren't that good, but you take them to somebody who knows how to frame it? And all of a sudden, that so-so poster thing you had suddenly looks brand new and fabulous. Take those negative events and reframe it. There's always something you can learn from that. There's always a silver lining that, you know, yes, I got in a car crash. I will be so much more safe from now on, and no one was hurt. And this was worth it. I know it's going to cost money. It's going to be really inconvenient, but nobody was hurt, and this is going to teach me. I'm going to be more careful. You can take almost anything. And what we find when people are sick, too, that they learn to live life to the fullest. So they, they find benefits from the social support. Or maybe they become part of a support group and helping other people cope with the same illness they've just had. And they become, it becomes a whole new career for them, a whole new life of volunteer work that's so meaningful that it changes their lives. So whenever there's something negative, Look for that silver lining. Turn it around. That's the T. The H is honor your own strengths. We all have strengths, and there are interventions that just say, write down the wonderful things about you and honor those and remember them. There's actually a depression treatment where they just do that. They have people make a list of the things they do well and read it every day just because that's who you are. You are your strengths. We're, we live in such a competitive hostile society that we forget that and we're always focusing on the negative you get a 95 on an exam i'm what's wrong with me i didn't get you know why didn't i get that right no you did well we're all doing in many times the very very best we can and honor that about yourself and those with around you so remember those strengths and and let them envelop you and think about them they're a part of who you are and then the e for breathe the E is end each day with gratitude. Note the positive things you did. Most of us do a post-mortem on the day. And just as I said, you leave your office, and you go, I can't believe it. I didn't get that letter done. I'm never going to get this paper done. And we just, it's, a, it's such a really, it casts a pall over the whole day. No, if you realistic goals, and you say, you know what? I got a lot done. I love talking to that group. 
after work today. I loved that, and I connected with some new people that didn't know about the Osher Center. This, this is good. These are all good things. And right as I slip off to sleep at night, I, I think about what I'm grateful for. I sort of go you know, through a list of those things that I'm most thankful for in my life, a gratitude list, because there is so much. You know, and most of this I've been taught by people who have taught me to really be grateful. And so you do positive accounting at the end of the day. Do that positive list as you're going, drifting off to sleep of the good things that happened. Now, in studies, we had to have a scale for this, and you can't find anything in the mental health literature. There weren't measures for being growing as a person. I mean, this is amazing. Crystal Parks, who is a postdoc here at UCSF, found this personal growth scale and had to develop it and work on it because it's just not part of the mental health lexicon, which tells us that this is something that is really an important area we need to work in. He, these are the items. I learned to be myself and, tr and not try to be what others want me to be. I learned to communicate more honestly with others. I learned to be open uh, to new information and ideas. I learned to find more meaning in life, the personal growth scale. And in just a moment, I'll show you what happened in coping effectiveness training when we use that measure. We did a large study. We randomized people to two types of coping effectiveness training, and they both worked equally well. And then we had people in a control group that had a monthly call from a therapist just checking in, making sure they were all right, giving them a little bit of support. After the study, pre to post, right now it's just we taught them coping effectiveness training, and you're seeing the results over that period of time when they had the active intervention we significantly enhanced coping self-efficacy. These people could cope better. They could problem solve. They could negotiate. They could be mindful. So they showed changes compared to the control that was getting some support. Here's a measure of positive states of mind, which is a four-item scale of being able to get to a positive place in their mind, to be at peace with themselves. Notice the controls actually slipped. But the people who had gone through the coping were able to find that place of peace. And then this is personal growth, the scale I just showed you. No change or actually a tiny drop in the controls. Significant increase in personal growth in the group that learned these coping skills of problem solving, being mindful, being able to breathe. Is it maintained over time? This is the surprise. In almost all of our interventions, we'll see an effect at three months, and then it drops down and fades away, because I think of the stresses and strains in our society. I've never seen results like this, where after the study was over, it continued on and enhanced. And we think that this is because as people could cope more effectively, other, they were getting a lot of positive reinforcement from the environment. They could problem solve, they were more optimistic, they're getting more of that social support. It becomes self-sustaining. And it went right out to the end of the study. Um, the control group increased some by six months getting those calls. And, just, um, so they were, and I was glad to see that they improved some because you were worried about people. Here's the positive states of mind. I, again, never seen these kinds of levels where you, you see a boost and then it holds over time despite stress and strain. 
Uh, with negative mood states, I, I couldn't show all the slides, but most of those, they get better, and then it falls away over time. There's something different about tapping into this. Here's the personal growth scale. Interestingly, they peaked. There was a little bit of a slipping, and then actually it's, it, the curve starts back up again over time. So there's something about learning how to find this, this magical, some self-healing capability that we have. So this is what I've done this evening. I, there are pathways by which positive emotions influence our health and well-being that are physiological. It affects our behavior. It affects the people around us. I've pointed out that the positive emotions are not the inverse of negative, so you can reduce those negative ones and you can elevate the positive ones. And coping effectiveness training can help you do that. Can positive emotional states be increased and maintained? And the answer is a resounding yes. And I've given you a tool that you can use. You have what we worked with others over those weeks to um, obtain. So I just want to talk and sort of merge this into integrative medicine. Integrative medicine, which is what the Osher Center is trying to do, is to develop the science, the evidence base, that facilitates the integration of effective strategies to address health challenges like arthritis, low back pain, and metabolic syndrome, to facilitate the integration of those strategies to address health challenges, but also to teach this positive affect, if you will, to set a goal beyond just returning people to disease-free. What we want to do with integrative medicine is actually elevate people beyond that so that they can strive for personal growth and enhanced well-being. We don't just want people to not have symptoms. We want people to thrive and to be able to self-heal, to be resilient in the face of some of the stresses of everyday life. And that's really our goal. We want to encourage people to actively participate in choices like learning about positive states of mind, learning how to B-R-E-A-T-H-E, to enhance their resilience, prevent illness, and improve the quality of their lives. Thank you so much. My question is, how uh, uh, familiar are you, as you must be, with the integrative medicine in Tucson with Dr. Weil? Are you work? I mean, have you learned from his institute? Have you learned from yours? Because I know that's going on there, and I'm curious. Absolutely. Um, the UCSF Osher Center works very closely with Andrew Weil. Um, in fact, we have fellows who go down after they have their MDs or their nursing nurse practitioners and other health professionals will go and do a training at Andrew Weil's um, institution. Then they come back to the Osher Center. And in fact, Kevin Barrows and the physicians at the Osher Center, two of the three, were actually part of that fellowship program. So we work hand in glove. So, um, and in fact, Andrew, um, I think, is responsible for a lot of people who are doing more breathing. He's, whenever he's on Larry King Live, and Larry King will say, okay, but what can people do? Andrew will say, well, one thing we can all do, because it actually does really enhance your health, we need oxygen. Our bodies need oxygen. And actually, my new research is all focused on the issue that some people, particularly women, hold their breath under stress. It's, uh, it's also true of men, but there's a, it's particularly true of women of under-breathing. And so you have elevated uh, PCO2, carbon dioxide levels in your blood, 
which can, through a whole chain of events, tend to elevate blood pressure and have other effects. But Andrew is wonderful at, right there in Larry King Live, teaching everyone to breathe deeply, which, as we all know, means that your stomach kind of relaxes. Breathe like you do when you're sound asleep and nobody's looking. And that means your tummy comes out. And so, but we have done some research on women, particularly women who are employed, working on computers, uh, women in conferences, waiting for their turn to, to speak. There's a lot of breath holding. And I saw some heads nodding. Women, this is something we tend to do. We tend to hold our breath. And, you know, my mom does that. I go, Mom, are you okay? She goes, nothing's wrong. I'm fine. And I said, Mother, breathe. So breathing is something you really can do, and Andrew's a real proponent of that. Um, I'm actually just started seeing a psychologist who is constantly telling me to breathe. I, I didn't realize it, but just waking, walking around, I catch my breath a lot of times, and it's, it's just that I haven't been breathing, and I didn't even realize yeah. it. I'm wondering... Um, as someone for whom antidepressants haven't worked and with pretty severe depression, if there's any studies about any of this helping with um, those kinds of things? Um, only, you know, I think this is a brand new field. I haven't seen people, I haven't seen studies with major depressive disorder. And we would always encourage people to be in therapy for that and to follow treatment for that. And what we need to do is also look to see, but it just hasn't been done. This is all so new. We need to see if you could teach people to reach to basically depression. A lot of it is to try to reduce the depression, and they haven't tried to do both at the same time. The question is, could you enhance the positive well-being enough you could titrate off your drugs? But if you have a good psychologist, there's a lady right behind you might be interested. So your psychologist sounds like she's saying the right things. So I want to thank you all for coming and listening, being such a great audience. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.